Father God, I pray that your kingdom would come. I pray that you would encourage our souls and that you would empower us for what it is that we have to do uh, this coming week. I pray, Lord, that you would speak words of healing and direction. I pray that you would loose bodies that are injured or sick. I pray that you would clarify minds that are confused or anxiety-ridden. We dedicate ourselves to you for the next 30 minutes for your changeful word. In Christ's name, everybody says. Uh, once upon a time, I used to be uh, an academic. I was an academia in policy analysis, and then for various reasons, uh, had to uh, leave that, felt the Lord was leading me out of it. Uh, but you know, there was that time when you make a life transition where you're kind of like one foot in, one foot out, and it's like, you know, what's going to become of this ultimately? Um, and I didn't really know. I've always uh, been a writer, and I had written some articles uh, for Christian magazines and stuff like that, as well as some academic journals uh, back in the day. And then one day, uh, I had occasion to uh, Google my own name, type in my own name. Have you ever done that? I think I, was, I think I was looking for some citation information for an article that I'd written. I had to write it down somewhere, so I typed in Jordan Sang. And the first return on Google wasn't one of my academic journal articles. It was a headline from a Christian magazine, and it said, Jordan Sang prays to raise the dead. That was, that was the return headline. At which point I knew without a shadow of a doubt my academic career was over. You know, I, and I remember just sitting back in my chair and thinking, well, I'm committed now. Like, for the rest of my life, you know, I will either survive as a pure minister of the gospel or I'm not going to make it. But uh, once you become uh, known for... Uh, talking your way into a mortuary to try to raise the dead, then uh, you're no longer welcome in the ivory halls of, of the higher uh, academy. Uh, I also failed at that miracle attempt, which probably did not help my resume a great deal. Uh, let's do a warm-up question. I feel like we're a little uh, low energy today. Uh, we're a little sparse, so give yourself a high five. Get your juices flowing. And, uh, and here's the question. It's really easy. The question is, confidence or commitment? Which one? Which one? Confidence or commitment? Carl is committed to commitment. <laughs> After commitment comes confidence. I like that. Uh, commitment. Confidence. Neither commitment nor confidence. Yeah, both. All right, both. I don't know if we have fence sitters, fence avoiders. I don't know where we are today. Um, is it better to be like 100% confident or 100% committed if you had to choose? But it is warming up your brain, right? 100% committed. Is it okay, is it okay to be 50% confident, 50% sure, and 100% committed? Is that okay? Is that good? Would you say that's Christian? All right. <laughs> My wife says, that's marriage. 
30 years. I mean, it's, it's working, I guess. 50% sure, 100% committed. All right, we'll leave that aside for a little bit. Uh, and then I'll ask you a simpler one, just sort of like main, mainstream uh, theology. Why did Jesus have to live and die to restore us? There, just switch to an easy one. To conquer death and sin. This man reads the Bible. I love it. Uh, I ask it, why did Jesus have to live and die? Because presumably he didn't have to just die. I mean, sometimes I know the gospel is preached that way. Jesus died for your sins, repent, accept his forgiveness. But, you know, the Bible is the record of his life, which presumably is important uh, as well. And uh, through the centuries, the church has answered this question in different ways. I think sometimes tuned to culture, sometimes seized by religion in an unhelpful way. Um, but here's the way I understand it. Uh, we have often explained the cross as a mechanism of God's forgiveness, right? Jesus shed his blood on the cross and we are cleansed by his blood. Cleansed by the blood. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's a very uh, popular phrase. You hear it a lot. Uh, and always mysterious, because what the heck does that mean? You know, cleansed by the blood. And if you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, it sounds like a, a, a terrible phrase, you know, to be cleansed by blood. But I, I think the idea is that something about how Jesus died on the cross enabled us to be forgiven by God. And that was the mechanism by which God is able to forgive us our transgressions. Something like that. Right? You guys wave your hand at me if you've heard uh, something like that. And, you know, there's a lot about that that, you know, is, is, is accurate, I think, and life-giving and encouraging because it speaks of a God who would go to great lengths to forgive you. I think sometimes the emphasis on that explanation is wrong because I think in the kingdom of God on earth, I think in the heart of God, forgiveness is just ridiculously easy. Like, I don't think that Jesus needed to die for God the Father to forgive us. And I could quote any number of Old Testament stories and New Testament stories uh, to illustrate the truth uh, of that. God will forgive you at the drop of a hat. He will take almost any excuse to forgive you. And my favorite story of this is the criminal that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. There were a few crosses that day, as the story goes. Uh, since he was being crucified, he was probably a murderer um, and the criminal on one side is hurling insults on Jesus. You know this story, right? And the criminal on the other side said, hey, you know, don't, don't you rag on him. Uh, he hasn't done anything that deserves this punishment. Uh, and then he says to Jesus, hey, remember me. And Jesus is like, you're in. Today you will be with me in paradise. There was no theological lesson. There was no acceptance of this or that mechanism. And, and Jesus, of course, was still alive. Jesus accepts any excuse to apply forgiveness. It's like, I like that attitude. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of humility in what you said there. On the eve of your death, where you would be humble, wouldn't you, right there in, in the moment of your expiration. And Jesus just took that excuse to forgive him. And I'm, just a lovely illustration of God's attitude toward forgiveness. Ridiculously easy to be forgiven by, heart, by God. The only question in my mind is, do you accept it? 
Are you willing to accept what the Lord offers? And that seems to be the object of the gospel and the object of Jesus' preaching uh, more often than not. Uh, And what is acceptance? What does it mean to accept the forgiveness and the love and the truth uh, of God? Well, it means to make a decision. That's what accepting is. When you accept something, you decide for it. Uh, And it's a meaningful decision in the case of godly things. And so, to cut to the chase, I think God needed a decision point in the universe. You know, like he will take any excuse to forgive you, any excuse to get into your life. You just need to decide that that's okay. And so God just needs to present you with an occasion to decide on something. I think that's... That's the message of the Gospels. And the occasion that God supplied to you to decide was Jesus Christ, which is to say that God the Father made it as easy as he possibly could, right? He sent Jesus, a lovely man, right? There's nobody on earth that dislikes Jesus, right? Even if you don't believe the Gospel, anything about God, like Jesus universally popular, powerful, his teachings are fantastic. I mean, if you had to accept one person moving into the neighborhood, Jesus, right? Would anybody be like, uh, uh, cut your hair, right? He's just totally, totally cool. So God makes it as easy as possible. He made Jesus the decision point. And yet... Somehow, in the world, Jesus is also the most divisive figure ever. Because he elicits stuff in us in strange ways. And I'll just leave it there for now, but is that an accurate way to describe things generally? Like, super cool guy, super divisive guy, what the heck? How does that work? But everybody in the world sees that that is how it works. I think there are two kinds of people in the world to single back. Um, circle back a little bit. I think there are those who can't commit unless they're certain, which is to say, those who can't commit, because what's ever certain in life, let alone the life of faith? And then there are those who can commit in faith, which is to say, they can commit even though they are imperfectly certain. And I think that's a fair way to kind of divide the world. I think one of the great life skills is the capacity to be 50% confident and 100% committed. Now, I don't know exactly what the magic ratio is there. I don't know if you need to be 50% confident in order to be 100% committed. I don't know if you need to be 70% sure in order to be 100% committed. I don't know if you need to be 10% sure to be 100% committed, but I know that in this life, nothing is ever totally sure, least of all marriage, evidently. Right? Do you think that's true? And that ability to commit to something fully without being totally provable, certain, well, that's one operative definition of faith, I think, but whether you call it faith or not, it sure is life. It sure is life of purpose, and it sure is following Jesus. How much reassurance, how much proof, how much revisiting do you need in order to be all in on something? 
And that question, one way or another, defines your life. To be all in on something or all out on something, I guess, as the case may be. Um, Jesus didn't require great certainty of anyone. I don't think God ever requires great certainty or great confidence from anyone. Uh, but he does require great commitment. He does require a decision. And he's big on decision points. We're in this sermon series on how Jesus did it. How exactly did Jesus change the world? Because it's inarguable that he did change the world. Whether you're a believer, a seeker, or a complete unbeliever, Jesus, the most transformative individual who ever lived uh, on our planet, and he brought great change to the world. And he did it, I think, by forcing people to make decisions. He did not do it by requiring people to believe perfectly or to have 100% confidence or to even agree with them 100%. He just needed people who were able to make very strong decisions. And that's how he changed them. That's what he invited them into uh, in one way, shape, or form. I was thinking about that this, this week and um, thought of this story that I have loved since I was uh, a little boy, since the first time I heard it. Uh, it's not the scripture of the day, but I just thought I'd read it because it has stuck with me. Maybe it will stick with one of you. This is a story about Jonathan, the son of Saul, David's best friend, Jonathan. You know, you always hear about David and Jonathan. Well, this is a story just about Jonathan. And it's after he had seen what David did with Goliath, and Jonathan is starting to appreciate the spirit of the warrior a little bit. And uh, the Israelites, of whom Jonathan is one, are fighting the Philistines, who are constantly landing on the shores of Israel and raiding Israel villages. One day, Jonathan, uh, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. This is just a solo raid against the enemy. Uh, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. That's how they made decisions. No one was, was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the path, pass Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north, the other to the south. And Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And that was the phrase that stuck with me like when I was 14 years old. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. I'm going to raid an entire, an entire outpost by myself. Maybe it'll work out. <laughs> I'm tired of the Philistines defying the people of God. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. I won't read the rest of the story, but you can imagine what happened. Jonathan ends up climbing a cliff with his young armor bearer and attacking the Philistines, and it in fact really worked out for them. And, and it just intrigued me that that story was in the Bible, because it's not a story of obedience, it's not a story of, of, of I don't know, it's not a religious story. 
It's just a guy who thought maybe the Lord would be with him in the doing of a daring deed. And I very much wanted to be that kind of guy. Jesus is always talking about that sort of attitude. I'm not sure what you call it. Maybe you call it faith. Maybe you call it chutzpah. Um, Maybe you just call it swagger. I'm not really sure. In Luke 9, Jesus said that the kingdom of God was such that you're not fit to live in the kingdom if you set your hand to the plow, but then turn back. It's like you have to be decisive, uh, in other words. In in Mark 9, uh, a distressed father brought his sick little boy to Jesus, and the disciples try to heal, heal the little boy and fail. We talked about this story recently. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and says, the problem here is that people don't have enough faith. And the boy's father cries out to Jesus and says, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Can you do it? Can you heal my child? I've always loved that story as well because here's a father in need who confesses openly and publicly and clearly, like, I don't have 100% confidence here, but I brought you my boy and I need some action. Can we go for it? And Jesus is like, let's go for it. Of course, the little boy gets healed. It's that go for it attitude, which I think by definition is most valuable when we don't have perfect confidence. Are you following me? And Jesus wants to cultivate that attitude in us. I thought uh, we're going to end the sermon series uh, next week properly, probably, but I thought to approach the end, um, I would uh, read one of the most famous passages uh, of Scripture there is uh, from John 3. This is the story of a man named Nicodemus coming to Jesus. I say it's the most famous passage because John 3.16 is in there. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that one. So uh, read with me from John 3. This will be our text. As we wind down. Uh, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus had already performed quite a number of miracles at that point. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Which is a bizarre answer. You know, this guy comes to Jesus at night, meaning he's a little shy about it. He doesn't want to be seen. And he says, Jesus, uh, we know that you are from God and that your signs are legitimate. And Jesus responds, ah, yes, to be in the kingdom you must be born again. Vintage Jesus, right? He, he, he seems to answer a question that wasn't really stated, but must be hanging in the air somewhere. You must be born again. That's where we get that phrase. Uh, how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. A little disgusting. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, which is to say natural, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. I'm talking about spiritual rebirth, in other words. 
You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, it's an elusive thing. You are not supposed to understand it all, but clearly, Nicodemus, you, uh, a religious authority, are able to understand this. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you do not accept our testimony, acceptance, decision. You haven't decided yet. Jesus criticizes him. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will I speak of these mysterious heavenly things and have you believe? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He's talking about the being lifted up on the cross, the pole. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him isn't condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is all very fundamental salvation theology here. But this is how he sums it up. This is the verdict, though. This is the bottom line. Like, I know that you might not follow all of that, Nick, but here's the verdict, the bottom line. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They are tentative, right? They're not committed. They're dithering. Why? Well, because they're afraid of what's out there. They're afraid of what will be seen. They're afraid of what they will see or what might be seen in them. See? They, maybe they believe, maybe they have some confidence at least, but they have no commitment. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And I just love that last phrase of John 3 is a very famous chapter, but that phrase doesn't get talked about, uh, about often enough, I think that what they have done may be done in the sight of God. It's like they're showing it to God. It may be wrong, it may be right, but at least it was honest and before God. At least it was out there, you know? At least they went for it. And that seems to be what Jesus is talking about. To my mind, he's describing a path to salvation, to restoration, to power, to life in the kingdom that just speaks of commitment of making a decision, of just going for it and letting the light shine on you and showing whatever it's going to shine. You know, he says, those who are in the truth, who just sort of committed to reality, however beautiful or ugly it is, you got to be in, right? You got to be in the light. He was kind of rude to Nicodemus a little bit, but I think it's because Nicodemus came at night, right? He was being tentative, which is the one thing Jesus has a problem with. If you're struggling with doubt, if you have questions, we talked about that, that's fine. That's fine. If you're 
have some belief but need his help to overcome your unbelief, Jesus is fine with that. In fact, he may well perform a miracle for you under those conditions. But playing it safe, but being tentative, you know, staying in the shadow, hugging the walls, that gets in the way. That gets in the way. The inability to make a decision, come what may, come what may, you know, to kind of embrace the decision point and saying, you know, okay, I don't understand it fully, but I'm in, I'm in. Let's see where this goes. I'm not so scared that I can't live like that. Are you following me? And that's how Jesus changed the world. You have to decide. Whoever acknowledges me before others, Jesus says in Mark 10, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Period. Full stop. That's what it takes. Right? Whoever kind of embraces what I'm doing, whether they're an A student or an F student, you know, I'm going to acknowledge that person before God and say, oh yeah, this one's mine. But you just kind of have to do the embracing. You have to go public. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. At least in the context in which he's talking decision-making, Jesus says, I am the dividing line when it comes to decision-making. When it comes to bringing people together in the world and, and dividing down walls between races and genders and and truth systems and stuff like that. Jesus is all about peace, all about unity. But when it comes to your soul making up its mind, he is the sword. He is. And that was his function. He's the decision point in the world. And he certainly wasn't shy about that. When I am prophesying over people, sometimes in the back of my mind, the Lord will show me symbols. He'll speak to me symbolically. And whenever I see a sword above somebody's head, I know that they're at a decision point and they're going to have to decide to embrace one thing and let something else go. And then there's usually some follow-on information that the Lord shares with me. But I wonder how many of you today have a sword hanging over your head, so to speak. I wonder how many of you are stunted in life because it's just hard for you to make a decision, right? And maybe you've excused yourself because you said, well, you know, I have too many doubts or I'm not 100% confident. Well, join the club. Join the club. You know, you're never going to have all of the boxes ticked off in life. I know I'm just speaking metaphorically. But you have to be able to be all in or all out anyway. And that's the nature of the kingdom of God. I wonder how many of you are at a decision point today about Jesus. It's like, I, I just need to decide to be all in, to try to do it his way. Now, like the disciples on the day of the cross, you might have freak out moments, right? You might stumble and fail from time to time. Certainly they did. But they were able to get up and dust themselves off and recommit. Recommit which is also a great Christian skill, by the way, because none of us are perfect, but we can still try to be all in. You following me? So I wonder if some of you are at that point of commitment or recommitment for Jesus, and I wonder as well if you're at a decision point in life where you're just like, 
well, I don't know. I think maybe I should, but maybe I shouldn't. And you've been stuck there for a little too long. Like, there's such a thing as a season of discernment. And then there's a time for commitment. And being good at that transition is just an important life skill for us humans. And I wonder if maybe, you know, the sword is hanging over your head and it's time to decide which side of the line you're on. So I'm going to pray here a second. This happens to be Communion Sunday when we, uh, we share the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we have to do it in a safe, socially distanced fashion. You have a little cup uh, with a plastic lid on it. You peel back that lid, you're going to find a wafer. And we're going to take that wafer and we're going to drink the juice symbolically as if to share a meal together. And this was a ritual that was handed to us by Jesus Christ himself 2,000 years ago. On the night before he died, Jesus, sharing the final meal with his disciples, took the bread they were sharing and broke it and said, guys, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he took the common cup of wine they were sharing and said, guys, this is my blood poured out for you. Take it and drink it. And as often as you do this, remember me. And today I would like to remember Jesus as the decision point as the decision point for the universe, as the decision point for the kingdom of God, as the decision point for life. Are you in as imperfect and confused as you may be? Or are you out? And let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us about other big issues in life that we have to decide about. You're not ever going to be 100% sure but there may be something about which you need to be 100% committed. And I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak to us this morning about that. And then we'll take the elements. Holy Spirit, remind us of Jesus. The instruction of communion was, remember me, remember how I lived, remember what I said. In the name of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you are forgiven for your doubts. In the name of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you are forgiven for your sins. In the name of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you are forgiven for your weaknesses and for your failures. in memory of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, are you willing to accept that clean slate and go for it with him? Speak, Spirit, as we're listening.